It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Yes, it is Tuesday, and it is the 19th today. And uh, what's so uh, special about today is that every four years on the 20th, a new president of the United States is inaugurated, or maybe the same one. But the Constitution sets the 20th as the, uh, as the day. Uh, so unless they change the calendar to some other system, it's always going to be on January 20th every four years. That ends with an even number. Uh, I have two subjects today. and I, I'm not going to talk about the inauguration, but I just have to must make the point that um, uh, President Trump's refusal to uh, show up and to, uh, to graciously hand over power to a new president has not happened in 150 years. And the character of his, his character of being a sore loser couldn't be more prominent, uh, prominently pointed out. I don't think that any, any normal uh, American person uh, whether they're pro-Democrat or pro-Republican, would think that it's a good idea to um, not show up and do uh, what every other president has done for 150 years, which is to shake the hand of the new coming, incoming president and to wish him good luck. And uh, this is really unprecedented. And is, it shows really from the very beginning that he was a flawed character and uh, that he should not have been elected in the first place. But um, enough of that. I wanted to mention that yesterday uh, in the United States was Martin Luther King Day. And um, <clears throat> Martin Luther King, for me, is one of my greatest heroes, um, along with Nelson Mandela, which is an, who's another great hero of mine. And, um, and uh, I think it, it, it's worthwhile to kind of maybe compare and contrast um, the uh, days of Martin Luther King with today. And I know I've spoken about this a little bit beforehand. Um, but um, what made Martin Luther King so special is that he was a really fearless leader of his uh, own community on the one hand. But on the other hand, he wasn't just trying to improve the lives um, of, the, of black Americans. He was trying to make America as a whole a better place. And his idea was that uh, only by making America a better place would the situation of the blacks in America improve. Um, what he said is, look, I don't want any special consideration or special rights for blacks in America. All I want is for America to live up to its ideals. Um, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that all men are created equal, um, that all citizens have the same rights. If America only kept to what the constitution said uh, and what its uh, founding fathers uh, said, that uh, if that applied to everyone, then there wouldn't be any need for um, affirmative action or for special 
a consideration for any section of the population. It's not easy. When, when uh, the discrimination against the black people, especially in the South, but uh, pretty well everywhere, when, where, that, where that was so evident, where not only was it evident, but that the people um, who were doing the discrimination didn't have to hide it. They weren't embarrassed by it. Um, you know, you can kind of almost uh, make a comparison with the invaders of the Capitol building where they weren't embarrassed by invading the Capitol building. They weren't embarrassed breaking the law. Um, so when something like that happens, um, you know, not only does your job become so hard, um, but that um, to change it would make an enormous, uh, take an enormous amount of ta effort. Um, you know, if people were doing things on the sly, it means they know things are wrong. And it's just a question of revealing what they're doing and when they're doing it. And then you could sort of have them change. But when, you know, uh, things like lynching, which is an extreme, but just just uh, de, um, uh, sort of delegitimizing black uh, people in the south of the United States, where, you know, which went on for a century uh, without any kind of opposition. Um, you know, uh, Martin Luther King tried to change that and um, uh, to change that in a way that would um, kind of improve the whole country. Uh, he had a lot of opponents, of course, um, and uh, many of his opponents were in the black community who felt that trying to come to a peaceable arrangement with the rest of society was wrong. Uh, trying to get uh, white um, Americans to cooperate in the fight for civil rights was wrong. And his opponents were people who were in the Black Power Movement, uh, the um, Black Muslim Movement, uh, Malcolm X, for example, uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, people who felt that Blacks couldn't count on anybody to, but themselves to improve their own condition. And that militancy and uh, fighting was the only way because fighting was the only way that other Americans could respect the, the black community. And Martin Luther King felt uh, most importantly that uh, the fight should be nonviolent. That the moment you tip into violence, even for a good cause, uh, it destroys your whole case. And so he was, um, he was, um, he was a proponent of nonviolence, even though um, him and his people were faced with violence, uh, you know, in every march and every demonstration. And of course, he was ultimately assassinated. The other thing about him is that he knew how much danger he was in. And he could have stepped away from it and uh, just said, fine, you know, the message is out there and let other people carry on. But he, he knew the danger and he um, persisted. Uh, in a certain sense, if we can look at yesterday's news, it sort of compares a bit to, Alex, uh, to um, Navalny of Russia, who was poisoned by uh, Putin's government, uh, who almost died on an airplane, 
who was declared an enemy of the state in Russia, um, you know, whose life was saved by medical uh, people in Germany, and who chose to go back to Russia, even though he could have, he could live the rest of his life in peace and quiet outside of Russia. And of course, the moment he got off the plane, he was arrested. So this is, this is in a certain sense, is the same kind of a fearless leadership that Martin Luther King showed. Um, kind of uh, without uh, looking at your own personal uh, safety to achieve a certain cause or a greater cause to improve the country that you're living in. Uh, it's also so interesting if we think about the FBI today, which is um, going through all the pictures of the people who rioted in the Capitol and trying to make arrests and all this kind of thing. Um, people who are trying to uh, kind of overthrow the government, uh, people who had uh, sedition in mind. In Martin Luther King's day, the FBI actually broke the law by, um, uh, by um, bugging his telephones, spying on him, intimidating him, extorting him, uh, lying about him. And, um, uh, you know, pretty well they wanted him in jail. And uh, it, it's so it, it's so amazing that it was the FBI breaking the laws in those days, um, and today uh, the FBI is uh, sort of countering the biggest opponents that Martin Luther King would have faced. Uh, um, you know, he was accused of being a communist and accused of being every 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 terrible thing under the sun. Um, and it was the FBI who, in part, was pr promoting these sort of uh, these uh, rumors. Uh, they certainly tried to intimidate him by luring him with women and then trying to photograph him and then trying to expose him and saying, look, what kind of a preacher is this? Um, it's also notable mentioning preacher is that in black society, since their political power was very limited, and since their economic power was very limited, um, the only place that leadership could come from in those days was from the pulpit. In other words, you had people, preachers who were educated, who went to, to um, divinity school, to university, and who spoke to their own people. Uh, and they didn't have to fear that they would, uh, that their pulpits could be taken away because obviously they were ministers in black churches and, you know, their people were their black congregants. So these people naturally rose to positions of leadership in the black community because there was no other source of leadership in the community in those days. And if you think of today, uh, Reverend Warnock, who just got elected um, senator from Georgia, uh, follows exactly in those footsteps. So it's interesting to tie together uh, way back when with uh, with today. Um, <clears throat> uh, of course, you cannot compare the 1960s uh, and the 2020s as far as the condition, of, in particular, of Blacks in the United States. They're, although they're, their situation is still uh, as a kind of a depressed community, uh, the fact that um, there has been a uh, election for the first time, the first black senator elected in the South uh, just happened. 
There are many, many black mayors in big cities like Atlanta, uh, D.C., in the past, New York, Detroit, Philadelphia, St. Louis, New Orleans, Montgomery, Alabama, even Jackson, Mississippi, have black mayors today. Uh, economically, though, of course, the black community is still far below the rest of the United States in that um, all the net worth of black households today is around $20,000. That's it. After debts are taken away. And uh, the white community, it's about $185,000. And their, their job earnings are still around 25% below whites. Their life expectancy is about five years lower. Ad average education is lower. Their health is worse. More diabetes, heart disease, obesity. Incarceration rates are way higher for blacks. Voting rights uh, were, were established in 1964-65 in the Civil Rights Voting Rights Act. But they've been chipping away at these things, uh, especially in the southern states where the blacks are a fairly large minority. Uh, they've tried to, uh, you know, uh, make it difficult to register to vote. They've made it difficult to vote in black districts by eliminating voting places, as they did in this past election, uh, trying to limit vote by mail, taking away mailboxes, slowing down the mail service. You know, every trick in the book and plus gerrymandering districts is all aimed in the South at um, minimizing the power of the black vote. So blacks have the right to vote. The next idea was to try to minimize the power that that vote had. Um, but as the elections have shown recently, um, not in Georgia particularly, but also even in North Carolina and um and uh, possibly in Florida, that uh, the blacks are an important minority community and uh, uh, they um, can sometimes tip the balance as they did in Georgia in this, in this particular election. Um, uh, the, um, of course, uh, you know, the debate has occurred in the United States is to, to sort of ask the question about... Uh, you know, whose fault is it that the blacks are in a, a secondary situation or in a worse situation? And um, the uh, idea about racism and slavery having multi-generational effects is one that um, is uh, proposed by, uh, certainly by the black community. Uh, they say that the lack of money that they have comes from... Uh, less uh, uh, fr from uh, discrimination in housing, that they can't, couldn't buy houses in good areas, uh, redlining, um, you know, being for being uh, denied mortgages, um, that uh, municipalities where they lived did not put any money into the districts that they lived in, so their houses got um, you know, deteriorated and, you know, they were sort of forced into that, that, um, that situation of poverty, not through their own uh, means. Um, that uh, areas that they lived in, even the municipalities, if their houses were worth less, their taxes uh, could not afford to keep up good schools and keep up good services, so things got worse and worse. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the, uh, the way they went. Um, um, 
And, you know, the lack of being, being able to accumulate enough wealth to invest in businesses meant that uh, these businesses couldn't generate wealth themselves and pass on to future generations. So sort of in general, that's the kind of uh, situation that they, uh, the, that they found themselves in. And in particular, the lack of good schooling uh, coming from fewer property taxes leads to lower university entrances, which leads to lower achievement in society. Um, the opposite view is basically that, uh, and most whites would agree with this, that uh, Americans are basically equal. They have equal chances. There's no uh, systematic discrimination against anyone. And whoever makes it uh, in society is due to their own hard work and their own good luck. And there's nothing to prevent blacks from achieving anything they want to achieve. Um, as slavery ended in 1865, and that uh, voting rights were fully established in 1965, and that you can't blame the situation of the blacks today uh, for something that happened before 1960 or before 1860. Um, and of course, you know, there's no right answer to 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 this whole this 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 whole discussion. Um, uh, people uh, would focus on the idea of single uh, people who kind of oppose the idea uh, that society is responsible will look at figures in, in black family being uh, single parent families, uh, high crime uh, rates, uh, shootings, uh, black on black crime. Uh, and all of these things, of course, are true. Um, and, uh, you know, then explanations start to come into the psychology of everything and you know if you know if people are so sort of uh hopeless then crime is the only way for them to get ahead and this type of thing um but there has been upward mobility in the black community and i wanted to especially of course in sports and entertainment but also business academia and politics um, and uh, you just have to look at Kamala Harris now and at Senator Warnock to see uh, where uh, things have come. Uh, even in Mississippi, the most kind of retrograde state, you might say, uh, the Democrats got 44% of the vote in this election. And, uh, you know, that's mostly because the black community is, is as strong as they are. So all they would need in theory is another 6% from other communities to actually win. Um, I was thinking about the subject because there was an article in the New York Times by Charles Blow, one of their um, columnists who advocated that the blacks should move back to the South from the North. And um, what he was proposing was a kind of a we'll call it a migration, a reverse migration um, from uh, the Northern cities and from the Midwestern cities back down to the South. So um, let's just say that, and, and what he was saying is, is that by consciously moving like this, you could increase the numbers of blacks in the Southern states to a point where they would be the determining factor in the elections. And if they're the determining factor in the elections, that means they have power. 
power um, not only on the federal level, but on the state level. And it's a state level where all sort of big spending decisions are taken as far as uh, things like healthcare, uh, education, um, transportation, uh, etc. So uh, this was kind of the gist of his article. Uh, and what he writes uh, is that the blacks were the majority population after the Civil War in uh, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, South Carolina, I think, had the most uh, highest percentage of about 60%. So um, just imagine if people could vote freely in those days, um, the black community would have taken control over those three states at least, and they could have built a society which would be, su which would be serving their own needs. And um, if, if indeed they were in power and if indeed they were able to improve the lives of their fellow citizens, uh, you know, other blacks from even the other southern states could have moved there and, you know, they would have been a strong power base in the south and in the United States as a whole. But of course, um, very shortly after the Civil War, when Reconstruction ended uh, in the late 1870s, uh, blacks were, were, were completely disenfranchised and uh, all power that they had was gone. And they hadn't been able, of course, to build up any economic power in such a short time after the Civil War. And um, then uh, uh, economic growth really started to take off in the North and in the, uh, in the Midwest of the United States. And it drew millions of people, including Blacks, not only Blacks, but including Blacks, moving to New York, to Philadelphia, to um, New Jersey, to Detroit, to Cleveland, um, to Chicago. Um, uh, you know, these were the main, the main, uh, to, the main uh, Pittsburgh. These are the main uh, sort of cities that they moved to, to take industrial jobs. And as I think I had once mentioned before, uh, Henry Ford was very anxious to hire blacks for the huge amount of workers that he needed in his, in his car factory. And of course, he paid them less. And of course, you know, they did more dangerous jobs, but it was a steady job and a, um, certainly a much better life than being a uh, landless uh, sharecropper in the South. Um, and, and also blacks moved to California and to the Western part of the United States. So there was this huge movement out of the South. Uh, <clears throat> today in the South, um, uh, the blacks are 30% of the population in uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And uh, Mr. Blow says, you know, 30% is a lot, but 40% would be even more. And he said that, um, and, and as we all know, and perhaps maybe you don't know, but uh, there has been a strong movement back to the southern states from the north not only by uh, black migrants, but migrants in general. Uh, Georgia was for a time the fastest growing state in the United States uh, in population. Uh, North Carolina has a huge high tech industry. Uh, of course, people have been moving to Florida for ages. Um, and uh, there have been uh, many, many blacks who've left 
sort of the deindustrialized Rust Belt, where their steady factory jobs have disappeared, uh, moving back to the south where their family may have come from uh, to try their luck, uh, you know, in a place where the cost of living is less, weather is better, and uh, where the kind of discrimination that used to be there uh, is uh, let, gone, I won't say gone, but we'll say less, or is certainly less uh, out there. So uh, that kind of behavior that used to exist uh, where people weren't embarrassed to, um, or even proud to discriminate against blacks, that's completely gone. So if there is discrimination today, it's kind of um, much more uh, below the surface and therefore, uh, you know, in some ways much easier to live with than, uh, you know, than it was before. <clears throat> um, Georgia, for example, in the 1990s was a quarter black and today it's one third black. So that gives you an idea. Uh, the city of Atlanta is considered to be the black capital of the United States. It's the city with the um, highest proportion of wealthy uh, black uh, people uh, in the United States, a fast growing city. Uh, it's a city which uh, really um, was responsible for the uh, winning of Georgia by the Democrats this time and by the winning uh, by the two senatorial candidates, uh, Ossoff and Warnock this time also. Outside of Greater Atlanta, pretty well everyone else uh, voted Republican, but Greater Atlanta is so huge, uh, along with a few other small cities, that they were the ones who, who turned the tide. So, um, uh, uh, they, the, um, the other feeling is, and as he writes, is that it's not as if the South is the only place where racism exists in the United States. Uh, the, all kinds of good studies have shown that racism or anti-black feeling is, 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 is um, found present everywhere. Uh, a little bit less in the Western part of the US, but um, there's just as many, um, you know, kind of anti-black feeling uh, in the north as there is in the south. It just may be a little bit more hidden in the north. Uh, you know, if you remember Donald Trump uh, saying those when the, the Central Park jogger was killed, you know, and they rounded up five, uh, five black guys who happened to be in the park at the same time, uh, you know, Trump didn't hesitate for one second to condemn them for her murder. And of course, they, they were not the ones who did it. So, um, you know, like, uh, like I was saying, if a black person is saying, well, you know, I'm not making it here in the north, uh, you know, there's discrimination everywhere. I might as well move down south to, um, you know, to try my luck in a different, uh, in a different area, a different place. Um, let's see here. Uh, there's another sort of, you know, in the North, the, 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 um, uh, the, the ghettoization of blacks was very strong. And uh, uh, if you look at statistics to say, well, where, are, where is housing the most segregated? In other words, where do blacks live in the most homogeneous um, environments? 
that are, you know, you could call them ghettos or you could call them completely black neighborhoods. They're all in the north. Uh, places in Chicago and St. Louis, um, in uh, even in Minneapolis, uh, northern cities like that. Um, every northern city had its own kind of black uh, ghetto, we'll call it. Um, even, of course, in the West, in L.A., uh, in, in Oakland. Um, and uh, the South uh, was, in a certain way, a little more relaxed in that sense. In other words, Blacks and whites had been used to living together for generations and centuries, and um, there wasn't this kind of, um, uh, uh, we'll, we'll call it, uh, uh, lack of mixing. So it's true that in the South, the blacks and whites were, uh, were separated uh, in housing, but they weren't physically separated. They worked together. And uh, one of the interesting phenomenons now, phenomena is that um, there's a, a f some degree of intermarriage, of racial intermarriage um, going on all over the US. And uh, it's certainly, certainly not uncommon in the South. I'm not quite sure if the rate is higher in the South or not, but it's certainly completely normal uh, these days in the South to see a mixed race uh, couple. Um, the, uh, the people, of course, the people who might be opposed to this idea of blacks moving to the South would be pe black people who have power in the North. So uh, these might be, uh, you know, mayors and might be uh, uh, other uh, politicians, district uh, leaders and things who don't want to lose their, their um, you know, uh, sort of foot soldiers and their voters. Um, but uh, America has always been a very fluid society. People have always moved from one place to another. Less, of course, this, in this COVID times. Um, but uh, people have always been on the move. And uh, it will always be that way. And if blacks feel that they have more opportunities in one place, they'll go to that place. Certainly the election results in Georgia, uh, I would say would be a kind of a big advertising poster to um, black communities to say, you know what, this could be the new promised land. Um, um, and if you contrast Martin Luther King's time, because he was from Georgia and uh, uh, if you contrast those days that he lived through with today, it's really quite, uh, uh, you know, quite remarkable. Um, you know, we can't, uh, of course, whitewash everything. Uh, the police killings, the George Floyd uh, police racism uh, still exists. Uh, you know, all we have to think of is look at the Look at the, the insurrection riots that took place last week in the United States and the police response to that and compare that to the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, marches in Wisconsin, uh, in Missouri, um, in other places to see how, uh, and in Washington, D.C. itself, to see how police respond to a black crowd uh, who are peaceful versus how people, police responded to this crowd in Washington who weren't peaceful. Two completely different standards of policing. 
Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that's all that that is to another mark of of, of advancement is to look at the, uh, the president President Biden's cabinet that he chose, where um, blacks are far more represented than they are as a percentage of the population. So I think somewhere around 20% of his cabinet is, is black and they represent 12 or 13% of the US population. So, you know, in terms of power, uh, political power, uh, that community has certainly uh, advanced uh, maybe to a point where they've never been before in all of American history. So uh, it's an ongoing subject. Um, uh, one of the topics, uh, and I may have mentioned it once before, that, that seems to come up in academic subjects um, is the idea of reparations. In other words, does society as a whole, the United States as a whole, owe the black community as a whole money for having not only enslaved them and benefited from free labor, but uh, discriminated against them for a hundred years, resulting in the figures and facts that I just gave you before uh, of their lower point in society? And should uh, something be done, some sort of affirmative action including payment uh, to make all this up. Uh, there are some advocates of doing this. Uh, I think this is a terrible idea myself, um, but there are definitely advocates who, who want that to be done. Um, you know, my objection is number one, of course, to decide who a black person is. I mean, there is no standard. There is no, um, there is no uh, measure to say, you know, who is and who isn't. This isn't South Africa where people can have cards in their wallets to say what race they belong to. And then of course, um, you know, there are many uh, black uh, people who don't need uh, the state's um, money. Uh, you know, and as an aside, by the way, you know, you heard that the America wants to give out $1,400 to every, um, every person whose uh, earnings are under $75,000. Uh, but that would mean that a couple who earn 150,000 or 149,000 a year, they would get $2,800. And really, uh, you know, this to my thinking is not a good way to spend money. I mean, sure, everyone likes to get it, but that's not uh, the, best, the best purpose that money could be put to. It would be better to give double the money to people who are really poor uh, rather than sort of wasted on a, a middle-class sort of family. But that's an aside. Um, uh, you know, other measures to try to improve the, the lives of black communities included uh, school busing. And busing children from bad schools in center cities out to the suburbs. Uh, and it was so interesting, I was watching, and maybe you saw this too, uh, Kamala Harris's... Uh, program that was shown yesterday about her life and it said she was one of the first students to be bused from the uh, from the black area of Oakland California into the uh, white suburbs um, uh, yeah I think it was Oakland yeah um, and you know how she benefited from going to a good school and by the way by the way I'm speaking to my listeners here I don't know how many of you saw this program 
It was a kind of a, the whole life and achievements of Kamala Harris. And what they left out completely was her years in Montreal. And she spent five years in Montreal. She went to high school in Montreal, finished high school in Montreal. And uh, normally a person's high school years are so formative in their lives. And why they completely omitted it, um, I have no idea. But, um, you know, certainly she, she did not, let's say flourish in Montreal, her high school years were tough coming to a new city, uh, you know, with just her mother, but her family still lives here. Her mother, sister still lives here. So, you know, uh, I think it may be just been laziness or, or, or not wanting to send the film crew to Montreal to do this here, but uh, it wasn't, uh, to me, it was a kind of a, not a complete picture of her, but anyway, that's, that's an aside. Um, but uh, to go back to busing, uh, busing didn't really work because there was such strong opposition to it by suburban parents who didn't want to have, um, you know, uh, let's call them strangers coming into their children's schools. Uh, and so gradually, as society evolved, then uh, blacks began moving to the suburbs. And of course, once they did that, they did that seeking good schools and then that way the schools became more integrated. Um, so, uh, you know, in a certain sense, the black community starting off this new presidential era with uh, some very hopeful signs. Um, let's check my watch, okay. Uh, so that's, uh, I'm going to stop now on this topic. I have a completely different topic to uh, talk about now, uh, but, I'll just stop for a second to see if you have any questions or comments before I change subjects completely. Let's see, Angela, are you around to uh, see? I see somebody here named Michael. Michael, please unmute yourself and ask Mr. Dwoskin your question. Yeah. Michael, please unmute yourself. Yeah, you have to go un unmute. Yeah, the button on top, sort of. Michael, can you please unmute yourself and ask Mr. Dwoskin your question? Okay, maybe, maybe he doesn't know how to do it. I'm asking him to unmute himself, but uh, not not working. It's not working. Okay. Um, anybody else? I don't see any more questions. Uh, okay. I guess I'll guess we'll ask Michael again and at the end. Uh, at the end, yeah, that's right. Okay. So uh, my next subject to completely change topics, and you know, as you know, sometimes I pick one subject, sometimes two. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Germany today. And that's because uh, this week, uh, the um, Christian Democratic Party picked a new leader uh, of that party, who in, in almost all likelihood will become the new leader of Germany. So without going into an enormously detailed um, uh, picture of that country, uh, I, I thought I would just kind of with very thin brushstrokes uh, give you some background uh, a little bit about Germany. 
um, and about uh, this new uh, leader of the country, uh, well, new potential leader, anyway. Um, and of course, needless to say, you know, most of us all know so much about Germany. Um, you know, needless to say, uh, who, who people who've lived through or parents have lived through the Second World War um, uh, and the Holocaust certainly uh, know maybe too much about it. But uh, just to draw some quick uh, brushstrokes, um, Germany is today the fourth largest economy in the world um, after uh, China, the US, uh, Japan, uh, and, and Germany is the fourth one. Uh, they've had relatively good results in the COVID struggle against COVID uh, compared to other European countries. Um, they are the strongest country in Europe in terms of uh, economic uh, power and also their population is the biggest one in Europe, uh, not counting Russia. Um, from the very beginning of um, uh, the recreation of Germany after the Second World War, uh, Germany has had a very kind of pro-European um, and uh, liberal uh, way of looking at things. Uh, they've been allied with France for a long time. And uh, the deal that Germany and France struck, kind of we'll call it an informal deal, is that uh, Germany would be the economic leader of Europe and France would be the diplomatic leader of Europe. And that sort of partnership has been successful now over call it 50, 60 years almost. Um, uh, you know, uh, German uh, manufacturing uh, continued to thrive at a time when other countries, including the United States and including Canada, um, where our manufacturing kind of went down when the uh, Far East, uh, the Chinese and Japanese and Koreans uh, came up. Uh, so Germany, in terms of, you know, cars, engineering, pharmaceuticals, this Pfizer, Pfizer uh, vaccine that they're giving out is a kind of a German, uh, you know, partly a German invention. Uh, machinery, electronics, plastics, food, chemicals, uh, you know, the names Mercedes, Audi, uh, Volkswagen, Siemens, Adidas, Bosch, the Deutsche Bank, all this kind of stuff, the fast trains. Uh, you know, are all hallmarks of Germany. And they were successful in retaining their manufacturing power because of a very strong engineering background, uh, a very strong apprenticeship background that they have in their school system, a very strong uh, layer of um, small sized companies which were able to um, continue in business and to succeed and to change and to evolve. They call it the middle stand in, in German, meaning kind of middle-sized companies. And that really is the key to the success. They didn't just concentrate on, on two, three, four big uh, conglomerates, but that this sort of manufacturing expertise uh, spread all the way down through the country and also that the, it's not located in one geographical part of the country. Um, there isn't kind of one, let's call it a huge city that dominates over all the other ones, even though Berlin is the biggest one. 
Um, so economic wealth and power is spread quite evenly over the western part of Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the, one of the sort of keys to their uh, success. Um, I'm just going to do a very quick pencil sketch of the country's history. Um, and uh, just to kind of um, uh, illustrate the ups and downs that that sort of area has had. Um, you know, the Romans were the ones who conquered Germany from, uh, you know, a kind of an association of tribes which were there beforehand. And uh, the Holy Roman Empire, which uh, was established kind of in a certain way um, based in Germany with a German leader, um, Germany was the center of the Reformation, or Martin Luther, the, the founder, in a way, of Protestantism. We won't call him the founder, but the, one of the leading proponents of it in the 1500s uh, started uh, the whole idea of Protestantism. Um, and uh, part, of the, part of it came from the value that the Germans put on education. Uh, and... Um, uh, that he wanted to, people to be able to read the Bible uh, themselves and to learn to read and not to sort of be, uh, you know, shaking their heads at whatever the priest said and then and go home. Um, there was a huge war in Germany in 30-year war, 1618 to 48, where the Protestants fought against the Catholics and um, where Germany sort of splintered off into dozens of small uh, kingdoms or dukedoms or principalities, uh, depending on the religious choice of the prince uh, in charge of that area. Um, the uh, the, um, uh, uh, the the German sort of people were were divided constantly. Uh, and toward the in the eighteen hundreds or seventeen and eighteen hundreds, this this came to play out in the sort of rivalry between the Habsburgs in Austria and the Prussians in Prussia. Um, and of course the Habsburgs were Catholics and the Prussians were Protestants, but the, the rivalry was not really a religious rivalry, but more of a uh, territorial and power rivalry. Um, uh, there were uh, some 39 different states in Germany in the 1800s. And um, um, the, it was only in 1871, that late under Bismarck, that really the bulk of Germany became united. So if you think of it, you know, countries like France and Great Britain had been united for centuries beforehand. And um, in Germany and in Italy, uh, both, both these countries unified as a country that, as we know them today, only in the very end of the 1800s. So I think it's an important point to, to remember, um, you know, when talking about German history, that's really, really uh, the one. I'm going to, uh, you know, of course, uh, World War I uh, occurred uh, in a way um, having nothing to do with Germany. Uh, and nothing to do with the um, with the uh, you know uh, Prussia, the King of Prussia, who who uh, was the Kaiser at the time. It was just that he was allied with the Austrians at that time, the Habsburgs. Who the fight was on the Habsburg side, 
And, um, you know, when the Archduke of Austria was killed, Germany was sucked into the First World War. And that war, of course, marked the rest of the 20th century. And of course, indirectly led to the Holocaust, um, you know, uh, and the Nazi regime. So had the First World War not happened, the whole rest of the history of the 20th century in Europe wouldn't have happened either. Or had the war been limited to some small little battle, uh, the same thing would have, um, would have occurred. But in the end, of course, um, the uh, Germany lost the war. The, the, um, the kingdom of Prussia dissolved, the Kaiser abdicated. Um, there were strong penalties put on Germany, uh, you know, by the victors in the Treaty of Versailles. They had to pay a fortune of um, money to reconstruct the losses that they caused. This led to a huge inflation in Germany in the 20s and um, led to the rise of Hitler in the 1930s. Uh, uh, the, uh, of course, uh, World War II led, you know, was not only uh, responsible for the, the Holocaust and the murder of, um, of six million Jews in Europe, but the loss of the whole German Jewish community, which was somewhere around 500,000 people uh, before the war or before the 30s anyway. Um, it's also important to understand that the German people didn't only live in Germany, that uh, they lived uh, pretty well all over Central Europe. Uh, there were very strong German minorities in the Czech Republic, in Hungary, in Romania, in um, Poland, and uh, even in Russia. And at the end of the, when the war ended, the Second World War ended, there were some 12 million Germans who were expelled from the places they were living, principally in Poland, because uh, uh, there was this trade of territory where uh, the Soviet Union took over Eastern Poland and Poland took over Eastern Germany. And all the Germans who were living in the, the area of Poland were kicked out, as were the Germans living in Czechoslovakia kicked out. Um, and, um, once Eastern Europe fell under communist domination, um, uh, Germans who were living there, say in Romania or in Hungary, uh, were a, some of them were able to get out and go live in Germany itself. Of course, Germany was divided at the end of the Second World War between the Soviets who took over the Eastern German uh, section, with, uh, including part Berlin or part of Berlin, and Western Germany, which quickly became united in, into a sort of a Western country. Um, uh, these were the, the American, French, and British zones united into what became called Western Germany with the capital of Bonn. And probably, you know, we remember the word Bonn, but nowadays, like, who knows where Bonn is? It's a, it was the capital of West Germany for the whole period from 1946 until 1990. Um, and the two Germanys uh, lived completely different lives for 45 years. Uh, West Germany uh, was quickly built up by the Allies as a uh, sort of borderline to the Soviet Union. Money was poured into West Germany uh, to build it up. Um, crimes committed by uh, Nazis were, uh, except for the very top element, were more or less forgotten because the aim was to build the country up as a 
as a bulwark against um, East Germany and as against the Soviet Union itself. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the Allies assured themselves that Germany would be a democratic country. And their first leader, Konrad Adenauer, fit the mold perfectly. Uh, he was a liberal, uh, well, we'll call him a small c conservative, but liberal minded. Um, uh, Germany uh, joined NATO. Uh, the economic miracle of the 1950s occurred. Um, a, a federal republic was set up, a de democracy. Um, and uh, Germany really prospered from the 1950s until, until today. Uh, demand for labor was so strong that in the 1960s, they welcomed uh, Turkish immigrants to, uh, Turkish, not immigrants, but Turkish workers to come in to fill the factories. And these Turks eventually settled down. Uh, they had some notable leaders like Willy Brandt, mayor of West Berlin, who became the leader of Germany. Um, in 1990, uh, 89, 90, the Berlin Wall fell and Germany was reunited with Berlin becoming the capital and Bonn going back to its sleepy existence. Uh, and Angela Merkel, who uh, took over the leadership of Germany in 2005, um, uh, lasted as a stable, competent leader until today. And she was never defeated in an election. She just now decided to leave office after 16 years. Imagine 16 years in a row leading Germany. Um, uh, you know, the biggest controversy in her, in her rule was the idea of admitting uh, more than a million refugees and migrants from the uh, Arab and Muslim world, from Syrian civil war, from the Afghan uh, civil war, uh, from um, uh, Libya, uh, from all the trouble spots in the Muslim world. And in a certain sense, this was this echoes back to the guilt that the Germans felt for what they did to the Jews uh, um, and saying, you know, we can't, uh, you know, we created so many refugees beforehand that this is our sort of payback to accept refugees. I want to just mention a couple of words about um, the uh, amends that Germany made to the Jewish community and to Israel as a whole uh, following the um, following the reestablishment of a democratic government, uh, and then we'll talk about the change in leadership that just occurred. Just checking my watch, see what we got here. Okay, we got some time. So Germany immediately agreed to pay uh, monetary reparations to Israel as a successor, in a way, to the German community, which was in many cases completely destroyed and without any uh, living survivors of people who had lived there before. And they were, they, they paid, uh, they, in a special deal with David Ben-Gurion, uh, they agreed to pay millions of dollars in those days was really quite a lot of money. And Ben-Gurion was of two minds. He said, you know, why should we accept blood money from these people? But on the other hand, Israel was just established as a state and needed all the money it could get to get itself going and also to defend itself against its Arab uh, enemies. Uh, and he was very roundly condemned in, in Israel at the time by right-wing um, 
uh, right-wing uh, Israelis for taking this money. Um, not only did uh, Germany support Israel um, economically, but they also supported them diplomatically at all times in the uh, UN and any international uh, sort of uh, controversies. Um, they, um, uh, they also supported Israel militarily with, uh, with uh, you know, some weapons, uh, although they were not allowed to produce weapons, certainly at the beginning anyway. Um, they also agreed to immigration of Jews back to Germany and not uh, just German Jews, but any Jews. So uh, Jews coming from the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, were welcome to come and live in Germany. And uh, at this point, uh, Germany's uh, Jewish community, uh, I think, has more people from the former Soviet Union than uh, it has from, um, you know, descendants of original German Jews. Um, they, um, uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, on the eve of the war, uh, there were uh, children who were transported out of Germany to England, the kinder transport. And now that England has, has broken away from the European Union, the children or grandchildren of these people are now asking Germany for citizenship so that they could, uh, these people could become citizens of the European Union. And they're allowed to do that. Um, they installed these so-called memory stones and streets in Germany, little kind of brick-sized um, brass stones with the inscription of a name of a person who lived there and the day that they were deported from Germany. And these memory stones are put there to kind of give a physical uh, memory of the actual people who lived in these towns and cities. Um, uh, and it's a wonderful way to commemorate and, and to teach the Germans uh, of what happened during the war. Um, the uh, Holocaust, edu Holocaust education is compulsory in Germany. Um, every single school teaches about the Holocaust and teaches about the Jewish community that was there before. Uh, children, school children are brought to the Jewish and Holocaust museums in the bigger cities. Um, there were uh, the outlawing of any Nazi symbols and Nazi paraphernalia to be bought and sold in the country. Um, racism was really opposed uh, strongly in the country until it kind of made its comeback now with um, anti-Muslim, uh, you know, political feelings now in, in, in the country. Uh, Jewish property was restored, uh, you know, not completely, but in certainly, uh, uh, you know, people who could prove that they had property in Germany, some of them were able to get it back. Especially notable nowadays are the uh, restoration of paintings that were, uh, you know, in Jewish art galleries and Jewish-owned uh, galleries that were sometimes sold for small money at the very ed uh, very beginning of the war, just before the war broke out. And now the, um, you know, the relatives of these people are making claims on these paintings, and some of them have been, uh, have been, um, you know, restored or money has been paid to them in exchange for what they did, for, for you know, for the confiscation. You remember Hermann Goring was one of these so-called great art collectors and um, 
he 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 stole uh, you know masters from uh, Jewish owners, um, you know, either just taking it by force or forcing them to be sold for very little money. Uh, to go to the, um, uh, you know, we'll, just now to bring us a bit up to date on the, um, on the new leadership in Germany, um, the, uh, first of all, you know, Germany is a multi-party uh, country. Uh, traditionally, there have been kind of two main parties. We'll call them a center-right party, the Christian Democratic Party and uh, sort of a center-left party, the Social Democratic Party. And often they just alternated in power for the whole period, post-war period. Um, the Social Democratic Party, uh, uh, like Willy Brandt was one of the leaders of that party, for example, uh, they lost a lot of their support um, and uh, other parties have come up in, in uh, you know, in I won't say in their place, but uh, to add to this uh, sort of two-party system. And the parties, there was always a third party called the Free Democratic Party, which was a kind of a, we'll call it a small, small C conservative party, more interested in business than in, in, in sort of social values. Um, and they were often a coalition partner of one of the two parties. But besides those parties, you now have the Green Party, which has made a huge advance in Germany, uh, you know, advocating environmentally friendly uh, positions and uh, on the environment side and kind of, we'll call it left-wing positions in other areas. Uh, besides them, there's another party called the Left Party, and that left party is a, uh, we'll call it a remnant of the Communist Party, which used to be in, in control in East Germany. And, uh, you know, just a word about, let me just check my time again. Okay. Uh, the left party is the leftover of the Communist Party, which many people in East Germany, um, not most, but many people in East Germany still felt close to because it provided a solid, stable kind of... Um, living there. Uh, East Germany was the best off country of the Soviet bloc in all of Europe. Um, and besides that, now you have the alternate alternative for German party, the uh, alternative for German party, which is a far right party, nationalistic, kind of like Le Pen type party, uh, which has come up, especially in East Germany. So interestingly enough, in the former East Germany, you have supporters who support the far right, and supporters who support the far left. And those are the five main parties now uh, in contention. So Armin Laschet, he's the one who was elected as the new leader of the Christian Democratic Party to replace Merkel. He is a uh, premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the biggest uh, uh, state in Germany, the wealthiest state in Germany. Um, uh, as I said, Germany is a federation of 16 states, uh, quite a, a federation, a little bit on the Canadian model, we'll say, with uh, uh, premiers in each, uh, in each uh, province or state, as they call them. Uh, the states have their own capitals, their own legislatures, their own flags, uh, and have quite a lot of power in, in local, uh, you know, education, things like that. Um, so Armin Laschet is a centrist. He's a um, uh, sort of a low-key type politician. 
um, uh, you know, liberal in his values, European in his values, a very non-controversial choice. Um, uh, at first, uh, Merkel uh, appointed um, uh, as her successor another woman, uh, but uh, but she um, Annabelle Anna Lee uh, was her name. Uh, but she sort of stumbled on a few different uh, things and uh, eventually was seen as a kind of um, a detriment to the Christian Democratic Party and so wasn't picked as one of the finalists. So uh, Armin Laschet is going to be the new uh, leader of that party and in all likelihood will be the new leader of Germany. Uh, just as a small detail, the, the, there is a coalition always between the uh, Christian Democratic Party and the Bavarian, its Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union, and those two together make up the government of Germany. So, um, you know, that's it. It's three o'clock. I'm going to stop now. I know we have just a few questions. I know that we're supposed to finish by, by 3.15. So if anyone has any other comments or questions, please, uh, now's the time. I know last week someone uh, commented about... Uh, they asked me to do a class on the indigenous people in Canada, and I haven't forgotten about that. I'm just kind of holding it in reserve to see uh, what would be a good time to do that. Okay, we have one question here. It says, uh, I, from Boris, it says, I just want to remain 1972 Olympics in Germany and Israel team massacre. Yes, this was, of course, uh, it was a terrible incident. Um, where uh, terrorists were able to um, uh, massacre the Israeli Olympic team. Uh, clearly, there was not enough security provided. Um, it's, remember, this is 1972. And um, uh, it's easy to live in a bubble. It's easy to live in a bubble of Western Europe where there was kind of mutual respect and all this kind of stuff. And to have imported terrorism from the Middle East in it at that time was, uh, took Germany by surprise in a way. Um, and uh, it was, as you recall, um, the Israelis had asked that the whole Olympics be stopped uh, because of the massacre, but um, they did not do that. Um, and uh, there was criticism of the German leadership for that, but it wasn't really in the hands of the German leadership to decide on the Olympics. It was the, the International Olympic Committee who, who did do that and uh, who were responsible, in other words, for continuing with the Olympics. And um, in, a way, in a way, it was something that has always been criticized. And... Um, the uh, Israeli Olympic team, uh, of course, went home right away and have been demanding some sort of very permanent uh, commemoration and apology from the International Olympic Committee, which they never really got. Um, so this was certainly one, uh, one uh, tragedy, but it really had nothing to do with Germany. I mean, it had to do with Germany in the sense that the terrorists came to Germany to carry out this uh, attack um, and the German um, security was not uh, adequate. Um, there was some Israeli security, but that also wasn't adequate. 
uh, and you know, terrorism is not something easily fought against, especially um, when um, when you're always on the defensive and the terrorists are always on the offensive. It's an interesting point. I don't think that most people would would think about that attack as being a um, kind of a uh, you know key point in German post-war history, but it, it is it is an important. It is an important uh, point that, you know, Germany, well, maybe just, I'll just finish off by saying that, um, uh, so interestingly enough, the, the two big losers in the Second World War were Germany and Japan, Not, uh, neither of whom previously, Japan had zero democratic uh, history beforehand. And Germany did have a shaky 20-year uh, democracy beforehand. And yet after the war, uh, Germany and Japan proved to be, uh, e e you know, not only economic uh, giants to rebuild their economies from devastation to what they are now, number the number uh, three and four um, world economies, but that just as importantly, they built stable democracies, stable multi-party democracies um, after the war in an unbroken fashion. So they've never had a military coup. They've never had an insurrection uh, a, la, a la United States. They've never had a, um, uh, you know, a kind of a, a martial law declared. Um, there have there have been multi-party democracies and fair elections with fair transfers of power. And Japan has had less of a transfer of power, but they still have had times when their leading party wasn't in power. And uh, they've proved to be successes. And uh, I would say models in a certain sense. Germany certainly is a model to the rest of Europe. Um, and Japan, in its own way, is a model to uh, to uh, to East Asia, and uh, they've also concentrated not only after looking on looking after their own people, but on giving lots of foreign aid uh, abroad and uh, to being open to um, you know having university you know, students go from these countries abroad to learn abroad and then come back. So. You know, in a certain sense, these are success stories, and uh, the world is better off for both of them uh, now. Of course, it would have been better had there not been a Second World War to start with, without question about that. So thanks so much again for listening. Um, I hope to see you all of you next Tuesday. We'll pick something different to speak about. And uh, thank you, Angela, again for hosting, and uh, I'll see you all next week.